Hello and welcome to another episode of Hashtag Symbio. I'm your host Zishan Siddiqui and today's episode originally premiered on the iGemers of the World podcast in October of 2020. We're now re-releasing it on the Hashtag Symbio podcast under the Entrepreneurial Symbio theme. In this episode, I talked to Arvind Gupta and Pro Bronson about their best-selling book, Decoding the World, A Roadmap for the Questioner. This was arguably my favorite book of 2020 and a must-read for any synthetic biologist. It covers so many topics such as climate change, Silicon Valley, gene therapy, AI and quantum computing, all in a biological context, which is just brilliant. But yes, I had the pleasure of being joined by both Arvind and Poe for this recording. Arvind is the founder and a venture advisor at IndieBio, which is the world's first and leading accelerator dedicated to startups in biology to solve the world's problems. As founder, Arvind has redefined the possibilities of early-stage biotech, investing in over 136 companies over five years and growing the IndieBio portfolio into billions of dollars in value. His current role is at a global venture capital firm, Mayfield, where he co-leads the engineering biology practice, whose mission is to invest in science-based companies that could change history. I'm also joined by Paul Bronson, who was a finance and tech journalist covering Silicon Valley for Wired, the New York Times Magazine, and an op-ed contributor for the Wall Street Journal. His science journalism has been honored with nine national awards, and he's the author of seven best-selling books that are available in 28 languages worldwide. Poe is currently the managing director of IndieBio and general partner at SOSV, the venture firm that backs IndieBio. Now, I'm not going to keep the audience waiting any longer. Let's dive right into this episode. The first discussion point I wanted to start off with was a quote from the book. As we remade the world into one mega system, we created a bridge for far more pathogens to spread. So how have we as a society done this? And as I'm sure we begin to decode this question, it will become clear that the real origin of the pandemic is in what exactly caused the bats to get sick. Well, let's get there, but not start there then. First of all, with our global trade and our global travel, creating that bridge, along with it came many invasive species that were notable. This sort of, I think this story started awareness as a society um, in Guam, in 1994, when snakes uh, on a plane had nothing against snakes in Guam. (laughs) Because in Guam, some snakes had gotten in on the wheel wells of of airplanes and had sort of taken over. And then we began to understand this concept that things like weeds and fish that we never see and don't eat were invasively attacking each other's ecosystems. And then we began to understand a little bit differently. We understand that like throughout the Latin American rainforest, that all it took was uh, introduction of a new type of frog that had a new bacterial strain on it. And that bacterial strain started killing all these other frogs and massive die-offs. And that it wasn't so much about snakes and frogs and weeds. It was really about the microbes and the viruses and the fungi that were going with them and what they were doing to change. And this is important to understand, change fundamentally sort of the thermodynamics of any ecosystem. 
and as as human beings by making essentially the world flatter the world smaller we what we're also doing because the key line there is homogenizing so yeah we were homogenizing things like you've got spotify and i've got spotify you got an ocean you know separate <laughs> us right yeah. Uh, and we have phones and we have similar foods and you have great Mexican food and we have great Mexican food, like all this stuff. But what we were beginning to do was to uh, homogenize the world in the sense of temperature. So one yeah. of the men examples we mentioned is a superbug that could not survive in humans at all. But as temperatures in India and Pakistan increasingly stayed at higher temperatures an evolving superbug learned to adapt to 37C. And then it spread from Japan and Korea. And, you know, we included this to scare the American audience a little bit, now is in the American Midwest where it's rare, but when it comes in contact with humans, it kills not one out of a hundred, but 50 out of a hundred. Yep. And by homogenizing our sort of thermal system, we are adapting microbes faster than we are adapting as other species. So the fundamental thing here is that the very, very small and invisible things can adapt to climate change much faster than all us big things. Think about it for a second. What famously disappeared from the earth when the meteor hit? The really big organisms, right? <laughs> we are the big organism here. And we're, the difference here, a meteor came out of nowhere and, and wiped out the dinosaurs. Here, our choices, that's a big difference. But this meteor, just this time, we have, because of that, we have a steering wheel still. We can still change it. We can still alter the course of that meteor. And that's what Poe and I have set out to do. And that's what this book is about. Also worrying is that over the past three or four decades, the number of zoonotic disease outbreaks have been increasing. I guess, yeah, that's where, you know, we are in the driving seat, but we're increasing the probability of pandemic causing pathogens. Do we now see in Silicon Valley, especially after this year, that people have realized, okay, now this is the time to address these issues. I think it's also mentioned in the book that the main issue is deciding what the problem is. Is that clear going forward now? I was going to set the stage for you. I'd broadly say, Jishan, that investing against climate to solve climate change is now an investable thesis. It's yeah. not the dominant thesis. Still, the dominant thesis is invest in computers, bet on Moore's law. But mm -hmm. it's now investable. Arvin, you want to take it from there? Yeah, I mean, look, we're in California. If you look outside, there's fires raging for months. You're in Australia at the beginning of yeah. the year. There's fires raging for months. This is no longer abstract, right? Even investors can now understand the simple fact of climate change because everything is burning down around them. So, yes. Yeah, um, and also uh, that it's not, um, it's not the sea level or the heat that will get us. It's the microbes and viruses. And as you mentioned, in the book that climate change is opening the gates of the germ zoo, which is sometimes I think the last people, last thing people think of is like, okay, uh, increasing temperatures, are we all going to be underwater? I mean, yes, that's one of the things, but another thing that I think sometimes the mainstream media doesn't cover is opening the floodgates of the germ zoo. Well, and, and that's happened, right? Yeah. I mean, 
back in April and May, all around the world, people were reading about how bats give viruses to humans. And bats are full of viruses and that bats are extremely diverse. They're actually really, really diverse. And what wasn't said, because this still somehow blamed that like humans got too close to bats or bats came to humans or something. Bats have an extra copy of P53. And with it, they are able to repair their genome incredibly fast. And they need it. They evolved to have that extra copy of P53 because when they fly, the heart rate goes up to a thousand beats per minute. All of that would create so much DNA damage that without, a bat would last like one hour and would get cancer in a day if it didn't have the extra copy of P53, as well as other elements of its system. Bats, can, bats carry a lot of viruses because they don't bother bats. They don't bother bats. Bats can take all these viruses and just prepare its DNA. The virus wrecks their DNA and they fix it. It's no big deal. It's just like a proofreader reading a book. When bats get sick, that's when they pass their viral load over to a next species or to humans. And so what this, this pandemic didn't start with the bats just oh, gave it to a human. It's this started with the habitat loss of the bats that made them sick. When they got sick, all of a sudden they sort of became contagious to humans. This this isn't the first time I actually uh, didn't know this fact that going back a few years with the example of Ebola, uh, researchers believe it originated from a small town, a small village in Guinea like 15 or 20 years ago before Ebola, um, that, that village used to be uh, a dense forest and a natural habitat for bats. But all that forest was gone. And that's sort of a, a stress which caused the bats to get sick and eventually the spread of Ebola happened. More and more people are becoming aware of how exactly this pandemic happened and how we've also had the tech to combat it ready for years but there was no private or public funding. Arvid, talk about the, the funding. Yeah. Talk about uh, with Prelis and a few other companies against Zika. That you, I wasn't here at IndieBio at the time. I was a fan of what Arvin was doing. Yeah. And, it, and it, they needed to pivot away. Yeah. And I think right. it was uh, you mentioned um, Prelis and MFluidX were two of the companies you talked yeah. about. And, and yeah, yeah. So they, they, were, they were pandemic uh, you know, they were ready to, to provide solutions for pandemics. Influidics was a microfluidics um, diagnostic on a chip, which required no power on a piece of plastic. So you can distribute oh, wow. it all. For Zika, that was really important because do you have Zika or do you have flu? It was hard to tell. Or do you have dengue fever? Hard to tell in the tropics. And um, with Prelis, same thing. We can make antibodies really fast against an infectious disease. Uh, really fast with antibodies only really matters in infectious disease. You know, you have time for everything else to, to make stuff and store it. So the business model becomes really hard. Okay, we're going to make, you know, a million chips and load it with what, right? <laughs> what, what antigen yeah. is going to catch, uh, you know, what antigen do you want to load it up with, right? So that's a really hard business. Um, same with making antibodies for infectious diseases. Okay, how, how do we how do we make so they both pivoted away from from that and now they're both back on back, back on yeah. COVID. Yeah, one of the things we have to do is as, as a society is understand just like we pay taxes and things like that for national defense, you know, you know, fighter jets and things like that. 
as we go into global warming, are we going to put some portion of our taxes go into defenses against pandemic? You know, that needs to become a better national conversation. So you've mentioned that there's a hunger in Silicon Valley for something rad, something mm-hmm. different. Some, like saving the world was, is everyone's favorite topic, especially right now and going into the future with pandemics. And I think it's becoming clearer. Synthetic biology is brought into the conversation more. And it is the way to, it is one of the ways of going forward to rebuilding the world. So firstly, I would like to get your thoughts on is indie bio in terms of culture and ideas, the sort of blueprint for the future of startups that should be there in Silicon Valley, like biotech startups that address um, pandemics, food supply storage, climate change, climate change, et cetera. Like these are the startups we need now, right? Yeah, I mean, look, Silicon Valley is fundamentally investors that need to make money for their yeah. investors, right? VCs are put in business by other people with money. <laughs> and if they don't make money for those people, they're out of business in five years. Yeah. Um, and so investors in Silicon Valley tend to be driven by fear and greed. And, you know, they quantum leap between those two states. There's not much in between. And so right now, like I said, everything burning down and they're stuck at home because of the pandemic, everything biology looks amazing. I think, and I hope this is a wake up call to show the world that you can make money by creating better products for people that fight climate change and fight pandemics. Um, And so it's not about indie bio being the model, the right model. It's not the right model. It's it's a model. There is no right model. All the models are, all the models together is the right model, right? Um, And so we need thousands of companies working on these solutions. We have hundreds right now, right? We want to make them thousands and, uh, and then tens of thousands. It's one of the reasons Poe and I wrote this book yeah. to, get, to get the word out on, you know, you too can build these world changing companies. So yeah, anything to add there, Poe? Yeah, iGEM's a big part of this too. iGEM's amazing. Yeah. iGEM, what it does to activate the entrepreneurial spirit in the social movement of scientists, young scientists yeah. who care a lot about the world are very socially astute who want to solve these problems too. It creates a, an incredible roadmap that uh, IndieBio is part of, iGEM is part of, Sand Hill Road is now part of. Uh, we need yet more things moving along that highway and turn it into a freeway and make things go faster. And yeah, I was just about to bring up iGEM because so far there've been 150 companies uh, that have come out of iGEM over the past uh, 15 to 17 years. And I think every year there's around 300 to 350 teams. And each team has the potential to go on and become one of these companies. What would, and this, especially with the opportunity in synthetic biology in the near future. So what would both of your message, message be to current, to people looking at starting iGEM teams and current iGEM teams? Well, for, you know, so I was a judge, an iGEM judge, uh, six, seven years ago. And what I saw really did shape a lot of how I built IndieBio. I saw teams, yeah, I saw teams from China working on bacterial approaches to solving tooth decay, right? And I was like, that should definitely be a a company. And lo and behold, you know, six years later, we found one, Oralta. And I think 
the the company you know these are projects these are students you know think wild like most iGEM projects don't aren't built aren't done with the idea that spinning out a company and leaving high school yeah. <laughs> like <Yeah>. so <laughs> Right, no one's gonna be a high school dropout. <laughs> it's like the new <laughs> high school dropout building biotech. Yeah. No. <laughs> so be as wild as you possibly can with your imagination because you get a chance to be. There's time to be pragmatic later. Think as big as you possibly can. Yeah. And don't don't use the likelihood of success experimentally to hold you back because it literally doesn't matter. What matters is the logic and the and, and how you think through building out that project and de-risking it. Maybe unconventional advice, but that's what I would do. want to see. You have plenty of time in the rest of your life to be very pragmatic. And yep. oftentimes you'll be forced to be. Here, you don't have to be, so don't. I, just, I would just say that like, I love it when an iGEM team also has people like from the business school or the business department involved, mm -hmm. it takes a hybrid of thinking and battering around of it. It also does take like your average iGEM team, like it's incredible what they do. And we look at all of it and Dr. June Axep is a regular judge for iGEM on our team. And uh, every year, yeah, I, I, I look at them all. <laughs> and the what I'm aware of is that not too many teams really have quite the chance to know. See, this is a trick. You can go do customer interviews all you want. Mm. But they're, the big corporates aren't going to tell you their real problems. <laughs> and, yeah, of course. And they're not going to tell you what they can't do. They want to make themselves look like they're incredible and they can do all this stuff and they don't really admit what their weaknesses are. And so uh, it does take the benefit of people with with different skill sets with different experiences to try to extract that to really learn like i'm just thinking of one that was like really cool technology and it could build enzymes and it could do it really fast and i won't explain it but they didn't know what to make they had no idea what to make and it was great <laughs> technology like and it's like well, like, give me some ideas. And I'm like, I'm not going to give you the greatest ideas either. Because I'm like looking for the best platform to give these ideas to. So there is a toughness there. Do realize that and just own it. Just say, you know, we don't necessarily know. And, mm -hmm. and we, and I do, I do worry about the system over-focusing them into like, as if acting as if they know the best application space. Because okay. sometimes that gives a wrong signal and, um, and, and the system does encourage that. Indie Bio, we do that. We terrorist grow. You got to know your market and stuff. And yeah. sometimes they graduate from Indie Bio and they only really figure out their market a couple of years later. And a really positive take uh, from this was in, in the book, there's a quote. Some VCs, or I, I believe it was uh, Indie Bio, that are betting more on graduate students than professors. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be a graduate student soon. Yes. <laughs> Excited to hear that. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fundamental human movement part of this, you know. Yeah, IndieBio wouldn't exist. iGEM wouldn't even really be exist if there was professorships for everybody to go around. They yeah. would just yeah. up all the talent. The fact that there's way more really, really talented scientists than there are professorships is really our key driver. 
that's helping to create this world. So for the last few minutes, I think it might be a good idea to actually talk about CRISPR. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's on everyone's minds at the moment, of course, because on the 7th of October, 2020, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna were awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their um, discovery and development of CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing. And it was the first time that an all-women team has won a Nobel Prize for any science. Wonderful news. And, um, you know, CRISPR, CRISPR is an amazing discovery um, by an amazing group of people. It really is quite a remarkable discovery. And there are some issues in terms of people are skeptic or mainly scared about genetic engineering. So, you know, in media, you have rogue scientists or bioterrorism. How do you, how would you address this narrative in the media? Because the truth is genetics could be dangerous. Saying genetics could be dangerous is like saying fire is hot. Futurist prognosticators who come out <laughs> with all their wisdom to declare that like the capacity to edit the genome could be dangerous. We need to have a conversation. It's like imagining some wise caveman wandering around caves saying, fire is hot soon everybody will have fire fire is hot like it's gonna be dangerous like yeah it's <laughs> yeah uh we're also gonna yes, do some amazing things uh to recreate the world with this uh that said everybody at iGEM is uses CRISPR all the time when it's the appropriate technology but in industry that's not necessarily the case in industry hmm. we're in a okay. different situation where uh, only a limited number of partners uh, are selected to have licenses to use it in industry. And combined with the legal battles that are happening, we're not seeing the massive revolution at the speed at which we could. Uh, we, you know, when we're talking about climate change and this ticking clock, it's, um, it's painful to watch that, uh, when we could be using this to solve climate change instead it's stuck in the courts i've got a ray gun that could <laughs> climate change you can't touch it or i'm gonna <laughs> and it's like yeah. and i think one of my favorite quotes from the book is like this east versus west battle for the crispy patent looks makes two pack versus biggie <laughs> looks small <laughs> uh, um so <laughs> I <just like> that. <laughs> Where is CRISPR currently being used in humans in, in a few clinical trials and in, in certain diseases? Where's its applications in humans at the moment? Yeah, the only place it's ever been used is in the eyes because it's immunocompromised. Yeah. You can't use CRISPR in the body. You can't inject CRISPR in your bloodstream and have it go edit cells. Why it immediately gets degraded by protein degraders. Um, and so that's the big problem of CRISPR in human healthcare, uh, yeah. delivery of CRISPR. And then let's not forget the small problem of any off-target effects, random or not random, permanently messes you up. I actually, we don't think that um, CRISPR is going to be used to edit the genome in people. It's going to be used to edit the RNA transcriptome. And that's how we're going to do gene editing. Poe, you want to mm. mRNA, so I, I feel bad at ever no, talking no, about no. mRNA. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
But yeah, look, the future, as we write in the book, the future of editing the genome is not editing the genome. It sounds like I'm, yeah. I'm being paradoxic and making no sense, but in fact, we don't have to edit the genome. We just can silence or hit promoters and regulators and, and address which genes are being expressed. And those applications, even in cells using CRISPR-I, CRISPR-A and stuff is like really uh, exciting use, quicker uses of, a, there are other ways to go about it in some germ, some cell lines, but like it's, it's an exciting way to address this larger social fear that people have that yeah. sort of gene editing is fundamentally permanent. If you could tell people we don't permanently edit the genome, and just to be clear, gene therapy isn't permanent. It's like one of the most misunderstood yeah. things that's there. It's not touching your germline. It's just going to the cytoplasm. It's just being read and expressed. And then over some period of time, those cells are gonna disappear and you're gonna need gene therapy again and now you're in trouble. But other approaches that just involve regulating the genome are the future. And that's a good thing because I think society can accept that a lot better. And it's almost a shame that instead there just so many fears were artificially provoked. I'm not saying by the scientists, I'm saying by Netflix. <laughs> and by book writers and stuff scaring everybody you know uh, these tools are far more subtle and far more effective than people think and they will dramatically change the world most people won't even know that they're there if i could get your quick thoughts on ai and quantum computing the next 10 years so let's go 2030 what do you hope to see? Uh, and that can be either government policy or changes in academia or industry or most startups that are focusing on quantum computers, et cetera. Well, in quantum computing, we, it is a very powerful technology to help us say predict the weather, predict design drugs and biochemistry. Um, but really it's a matter of national security and it bothers me that all around the internet when people explain quantum computing, they don't actually really explain its real relevance, which is the ability to break password um, yeah. left and right and take control of bank accounts, take control of weapon systems, uh, take control of entire banking systems. And uh, the race towards quantum supremacy is fundamentally a, a akin to how we thought of the space race. But it wasn't really clear how the world was going to end if Russia got to the moon before we did. It's maybe a little even more like uh, the race for nuclear weapons uh, in, its, in its sort of uh, type of impact it can have or how we should think about it. Um, as for artificial intelligence, um, I think that there's very big differences in the world as to where data is pooled and readable and the AI can use it. I think a lot of our sociology, the social impact of AI has been magnified uh, by what's happened on social media and the war on truth and the weaponizing of hate. But 
I think people are wrong to think of AI as somehow creating that, of creating that hate. What okay. AI is good at is finding hidden patterns. We were living in a society where we thought people were multicultural, embraced each other. There was a hidden pattern. The hidden mm -hmm. pattern was a, people, a lot of people out there had hate and it's a terrible hate. And the, all the AI did was find the hidden pattern and make it public. It didn't create that hate. Yeah, no, Poe said it well. I mean, we, we, need to, we need to invest in these technologies and we need to understand how they will make us more efficient and aim them at climate change, aim them at human health problems. Final message to the readers? What's happening with this book is not what Arvind and I wrote. It's in the mind of the reader while reading it. I believe yeah. that people who read okay. this book will have their own ideas, especially the iGEM community. It will trigger new ideas for them, get their friends to work on it with them. Those, that's, the, that's the impact of the book, is this transformation of the mind that happens in the reader. It's what the reader thinks about while yeah. they're listening to Arvin and I. And we hope that we gave people a feeling, we hope we gave you a feeling for a second of what it's like to hang out with us, have some fun, and mm -hmm try to solve some things. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share and check out our website, igem.fm, that is igem.fm. Thanks once again for tuning in. See you at the next episode.